Hello and welcome to the podcast of TechEU. I am your host, Andre Degler. In today's episode, I would like to play you back a conversation with Arndt Beninhoff, the Executive Vice President Esports and Games at Modern Times Group, which is also known as MTG. In this interview, we talked about the impact of COVID-19 on the company and its portfolio, about the role of Europe in the esports and gaming industry, and also our esports disciplines of choice. Let's listen together. Okay, let's start with a quick introduction. So can you tell me your name and what it is that you're doing? Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me. I'm Arndt, 52 years old, married to kids. I'm based in Munich and I try together with my team to build a gaming entertainment company under the name of Modern Times Group. Right. So MTG, I have seen the company name for a while. Uh, now I've been seeing it uh, in uh, news. Uh, but uh, tell me what it is. So w- what is the company and what's the vision uh, been behind it? Yeah. So Modern Times Group as a listed company is known for its uh, broadcasting business. So founded 30 years ago, used to be a classic broadcasting, TV broadcasting group with pay TV, free TV, TV production, even radio, and then some small digital businesses. What we have done over the last seven years, we have driven the digital transformation by investing into games and esports businesses. And that has led ultimately to a split of the group. So the final step in the digital transformation was a split of the group. We kept the name Modern Times Group. I don't know if it was good or bad, but now Modern Times Group stands for a gaming entertainment business, a global one. And the TV business is called Nent Nordic Entertainment today and focus on the Nordics and position as a streaming company. So long history, but the most recent one probably started back in 2015 when we started investing into these gaming entertainment businesses. Right. And uh, so what is the vision? Uh, Why uh, go for gaming and entertainment uh, market? Yeah. If you ask yourself, when you have to build an entertainment business back in 2014, what would you do? And at that time, it was clear that TV has reached its peak and that gaming already was set to become the biggest entertainment market in the world. And since we're entertainer and our job is to t- entertain our audience every day better, we went into gaming and esports as our lighthouse investment with the vision that this become will become one of the biggest sports in the world. This is something which was familiar to us since we have been big in sports. We've licensed the Champions League rights, Premier League and all the big sports. So what we have seen in esports was the potential to create one of the leading sports in the world. And that's how everything started. And now following, pursuing and buying build strategy, we're trying to gather the best and long-term committed entrepreneurs in the world to build these businesses. So have you seen it actually happening? Uh, esports becoming uh, at least one of the leading sports in the world? Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon when you have such a big vision and it's a bit like a 10-year old Brazilian soccer player, super talented, but it's probably just too early to say if we play the Premier League or Champions League, you only know he has huge talent. And there's a bit same thing with esports, since many people are projecting different things into esports. But the truth is, esports is absolutely new phenomenon. It's uncharted territory. It's a digital, global, young product. Probably everything most of entertainment products want to be. And the truth is also things take a bit longer since it's still a very nascent industry, already reaching more than 400 million people with a high engagement. But if you look at esports compared to all the traditional sports, esports is like the whole Olympics. All the different games are different disciplines. So 
in order to monetize the eyeballs, it simply takes a bit longer. And now we were hit by the pandemic. And that's why probably ambition expectations were super high when we started out and, and acquired the majority of ESL and DreamHack back in early 2015. And um, I think what we've done since then is we made sure that we focus on the right things to scale the business. We had to educate brand partners, media partners, what esports really is and how they can engage. Since then, we have made uh, great progress. But what hasn't happened is that esports became overnight as valuable and as profitable as the Premier League. It simply takes a bit longer. And honestly, there will be other revenue streams, B2C revenues, platform business, will, which might become equally important like the typical media business models. Right, I understand. And uh, uh, since we're already on the topic of esports, then another question about it as well. So, what companies have you acquired in this uh, industry, and uh, uh, how are you looking at uh, new companies? How do you decide whether you want to we, we want to go uh, after them or not? Our two cornerstone investments um, have been ESL, which stands a bit for the Champions League brand in esports, and DreamHack, the community rooted games festival organizer, but also organizing leagues. So these are two complementary brands. And that was also the main reason why they've chosen to partner with us, because we had some background in sports, we know how to manage media products, and we were already close to DreamHack. So this is the foundation for the esports family. And then we have done 10 roll-ups, local esports companies, production companies, and we've also acquired tournament platforms. And this is the foundation altogether for the esports vertical. As it is, stands there today, we have last year started to merge ESL and DreamHack, but we keep the two brands separate. And that has been an investment over now the last five years. Right. So where do you make money in this industry? Is it organizing uh, championships, organizing events? So the core business model is organizing running leaks and producing content. As a consequence, how you monetize this reach is through brand partnerships, sponsorship, and media rights. But at the same time, you also have B2C, significant B2C businesses where you charge subscriptions for tournament platforms where you offer premium features. Because esports as an ecosystem offers the amateur an entry level where you can engage, play in tournaments and pay for uh, the tournaments. And then all the way up to the pro circus where you have the reach, um, you reach more than 350 million viewers there you monetize the eyeballs and the media rights. So it's a mixture of B2B revenue streams and B2C revenue streams. And in the future, I believe that the platform business, that's how you can look at the esports business, is a bit similar to Unity as a games engine. What ESL and Dreamhack are offering is the go-to esports platform. If you're a publisher, you can just enable your esports tournament, or as a viewer, you get access to the content, or as a brand partner, you get access to the community. So that's why we look at our esports business as a platform business. Would you also be looking at acquiring actual esports teams? No, because then we would lose our neutrality. So we are, as a league organizer, take the probably a look at the Premier League. So it doesn't make sense to acquire and invest into uh, single teams. So um, that's why we stay neutral. We organize the league and we produce the content. We help the team to monetize the reach, commercialize mm -hmm. the rights. But we want to stay neutral as a league organizer. And what's your own favorite esports discipline? So for me, because since I'm an amateur, uh, for <laughs> me, it's easy to understand the drama around uh, Counter-Strike. 
So it's pretty clear mm-hmm. and easy. <laughs> a huge respect for League of Legends Dota 2 players because this is really like chess on steroid. So fast, so so complex. But for me, the right esports discipline is, is counter-strike. Right. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree uh, with this assessment. I barely understand what's going on if I have to watch LOL or, uh, or Dota. It's... But the thing is, because that was my enlightening moment back in 2014, when I was sitting there in the stadium watching a League of Legends tournament, I had really no clue what was going on. But I, I got these goosebumps because the, the vibes, the atmosphere in the stadium, they were as good or even better than in a football stadium. Right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So let's move on uh, for a tiny little bit away from uh, esports and uh, to gaming itself. So what's your activity been like in this uh, part of the market? And again, what are you looking for in the companies that you are considering acquiring? So in our games business, we also pursue a buy and build strategy. We are focused on mobile first games Mm -hmm. and trying also here to become the best home for entrepreneurs, meaning it is a bit of an new architecture where we want to find entrepreneurs who are long-term committed, who understand that in the family, you can faster scale your business and collaborate with other companies. And the first cornerstone investment here was InnoGames, a Hamburg-based browser mobile games developer focused on strategy and simulation city builder games. And the second one was Congregate as a games Mm -hmm. publisher helping indie game studios to publish their games. These were the two first investments, the foundation of our games vertical. And now most recently over the last only seven months, we've acquired three more studios who also fit our investment criteria. Hutch, a leader in mobile racing games, and Ninja Kiwi, really kind of an uh, inventor of the tower defense genre, paid games, but also transitioning to free to play now, New Zealand based uh, with the Bloons IP. And now just announced a few weeks back, Play Simple, uh, a world games developer from India. So now mm-hmm. we have five studios, um, pretty similar entrepreneurs, two legs in the games vertical, one in casual and one in mid-core games. Uh, and we want to stay highly selective because we rather believe in this like boutique family approach where I'm sure you can have 12 kids, 15 kids, but we believe you rather have probably uh, six to eight kids to, to be efficient and have fun as a family. Right, I see. So why focus on mobile? Yeah, we think that's the, the fastest growing market, less capital intense. We like the predictability of UA spend, how you scale the games, easy, easily accessible, uh, and a huge talent pool. You have many companies mm-hmm. and our speed spot between 8, 10, up to 40, 50 million every day. And, and that's why I believe that's the right market we, we want to go into. All right. And as far as I understand, uh, the gaming market uh, over uh, past year had uh, seen a very big increase. Uh, is, is that correct? And uh, how did you how did you serve this wave, if you will? At least on the mid-course side and PC game, mm-hmm. game side, we have seen a boost uh, through the pandemic and the lockdown. People stayed at home, played more. This is all known. That has helped the market to grow faster in terms of revenues. But even now on the normalized level, we see the same spending patterns. So all the cohorts we've acquired during the pandemic, they're still spending money in the same way like the old cohorts. On the more casual side, the boost hasn't been that intense or that dramatic through through COVID. So that's how we can compensate. InnoGames definitely has seen a fantastic Q2 last year, and this year is a bit lower. And then the other big topic is now the idea of a change affecting the market. So it's, it's too early to say how it will affect the market. 
But to these changes, the targeting uh, capabilities will be affected. But also here, it's an, it's an advantage of having mid-core and casual games where you can compensate probably for a shortfall on one side. Interesting. And how about esports? What's happened to, to this market? I mean, esports was, was definitely hit pretty hard last year since you need these live events to onboard new sponsors and, and media-wide uh, partners. Same time, we shifted everything online in a very agile way. Uh, we increased the viewership numbers. That's the good news. We haven't been able then to grow uh, the same uh, pace the, uh, the sponsorship rights revenues. But the good news is uh, it has helped us to become more efficient, to balance now more online and live productions. But we, we are waiting for the return of the big stadium events, hopefully end of Q4. Keep the fingers crossed, but latest than in 22, we're going to then have live events. So these are the big pinnacle events and then studio productions and online productions. Right. To be entirely honest, I'm actually pretty surprised to hear that uh, Mutecore uh, and uh, um, uh, casual games did not grow as much as I as I would have thought, uh, like and uh, apparently as much as, for example, desktop uh, PC PC games. So wh- why do you think is that? Uh, do you think that people uh, left uh, when they just stay at home? They just would rather go for something more serious than a like mobile game or what's going on here? I think it's simply the setup at home that you rather spend time than on the PC or even browser games. Inno games has still a significant part in, in browser games, there we have seen an increase, even in the legacy games. Uh, but when you're on the go, then usually that's uh, that's the time when you play mobile games, you have short sessions, like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And, and that's why I think the PC platform, console, and browser have benefited more during the pandemic. And did you see any increase across your mobile titles as the lockdown started to uh, relax a little bit in some parts of the world? I mean, we've seen a slight increase uh, on the mobile side during the pandemic, and then we had these waves since we are now end of the third wave. Uh, but the, the spike was definitely uh, during April last year, April, May last year. I see. So uh, another question that I had since uh, we are uh, writing at TechEU about the European market and the European companies. So what do you think is actually the role of uh, Europe as an ecosystem in uh, the markets of both gaming and esports? I mean, for us as an investor, uh, both on the esports and gaming side, um, if you take ESL as as a front runner uh, and incumbent in the esports business, Europe is a huge talent bed. So yes, um, the birthbed of esports is South Korea, but then when you look at the further development, um, the European talents have been a main driver. So ESL has built the business out of Cologne and then ventured into US, and the US followed probably two, three years later. They caught up uh, pretty fast, but um, here esports was definitely driven by the European talents. So one aspect is the talent bed. The same goes for games development. We have seen here in Germany, UK, in the Nordics, great innovations and, uh, and, and, and studios being acquired by US companies, US corporates. The third aspect is since gaming entrepreneurs are so focused on values and you can look into any other industry. So someone who has launched an e-commerce business might launch another whatever lead gen business, but the games entrepreneurs can only, only wants to work in games. So and since they can scale so fast, if they choose a partner, it's all about the values. 
So here it's important, at least in the, in the cultural context of Europe, um, if you share the same values, then it's probably also easier to partner up and, and build something together. So I think that's that's the third aspect. The other thing is you can run a games business out of any remote setup. So uh, since you don't need outlets in US or somewhere else uh, to to scale UA there and, and develop uh, IP for these markets. So I think there are huge advantages um, to or there's the natural fit to invest into European game studios. Um, and then we have these hubs. Uh, I mean, Finnet is amazing uh, with Helsinki. Stockholm has great talents. You have Berlin, London, and even for mobile game development, Portugal. Uh, so we have so many attractive games hubs supported by the government. So we have funding in Germany, you have 50% um, funding through the government. Uh, you have tax credits in UK. So I think it's, it's a pretty healthy ecosystem with a, a huge and deep talent pool. So am I understanding correctly uh, that you're saying that like the default path for a European games uh, studio is to grow to a certain point and, uh, and then be acquired uh, by a US studio or a, stu or a company from elsewhere? No, 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 sorry. Don't, don't get me wrong. It, <laughs> in the end, it's a very personal decision if you want to sell. I think most of the entrepreneurs have realized um, when they reach a certain scale that it might be more beneficial to join a group or a family uh, to have at least some exchange, have access to central platform services. But also most of them, especially the serial entrepreneur who went to a corporate experience, are a bit reluctant to sell to a corporate. Uh, now with this huge, I would say, consolidation wave uh, going on in, in the games business, you have private equity investors, you have US corporates, you have other strategics, media company trying to invest into games. So I think it's pretty comfortable situation for any successful games entrepreneurs. But that's also the reason why they should carefully select the right partner based on the values. And the, the talent pool is, is pretty, pretty huge, I would say. Yeah. So my thesis would be that naturally, if I'm European games entrepreneur, you might be better off to partner with a European investor, as long he gives you the freedom, the support to further grow your business. Right. I see. And you keep uh, mentioning the word family. So uh, so I have to ask, so what is this family approach that MTG is uh, partly known for? Uh, what is it uh, What is it actually like and uh, how is it different from what you would expect from another company doing doing same sort of uh, M&A around the industry? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm influenced by, naturally by my own experience. So probably threefold. One is, yeah, having my own family. I know... <laughs> Uh, what, what it feels and what are the advantages or disadvantages. Secondly, as a German working since seven years with a Swedish company, I really appreciate the values and the consensus-driven society and how respectful they want businesses. And the third aspect is how can you keep the entrepreneur's independence and momentum and, and energy high? So here I also believe that the family environment is the ideal setup. Because I've seen so many M&A failing when big corporates buy um, fast-growing companies and then trying to tell them what to do. So that's why I'm a firm believer that in a family environment where you respect the entrepreneur, where he would enjoy or she would enjoy the exchange with other entrepreneurs, like-minded entrepreneurs, and together you grow and learn, that's the best framework. So everyone has a different interpretation of a family. Sure, some have a more hierarchical family. <laughs> some are more like a team. I think our Swedish model suits entrepreneurs who are open to learn, to listen, 
uh, and enjoy the exchange with other entrepreneurs. So, and again, we want to keep the family small. And then, they, then there's another family on the side called the esports family, and there are more and more synergies between both families. Uh, so, let's see. We 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 try to develop and 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 improve it on the on on the on the go. So there is not one recipe for success. In the end, as a very individual decision for us to join the family, and then everyone should contribute. Uh, so it's it's there's not a menu, um, and now we need to prove also that this family works, the family model. So this uh, this all sounds great, but uh, can you also uh, explain what it means in practice? So how do you yeah. actually apply this? Yeah, I mean, look, let's let's take a, one of the most recent changes and, and and trends in the industry with the IDFA change. I mean, um, all gaming companies are dependent once they want to scale the games on UA. So then you have the the main channels from Facebook, Google, um, performance networks, and so forth. So in, in this family, everyone contributes reach. They all bring gamers to this family. So one idea is to build an audience network where we can cost promote our own games. So company Inner Games can cost promote to Hutch and vice versa. So the idea is here to, to create an audience network based on ad techno technology, um and then become less dependent on external ua channels that's one concrete example the other example is um we we can also have centers of excellence uh where we use the same tools platforms it's also something each company will champion one of the centers of, of excellence and then i mean it all starts also with a strategy uh, development if you have aspiring partner you, you can discuss topics that also it's a value for itself So how to bring the family to life is by having access to the same tools, platform services, building an audience network, trying to support each other in the most crucial disciplines like UA, product development, BI analytics. And then in the end, each of these studios is a highly successful and profitable studio. And the synergies from the family come on top. Understood. Yeah, this sounds great. And uh, this is almost it for my questions for today. So the last question that I wanted to ask is, so what what are your challenges right now? What is it uh, that uh, you are trying to solve as a company these days? So on the M&A front, one of the challenges is definitely uh, the fierce competition. As I mentioned earlier, um, there's a consolidation wave going on. And to position ourselves as the best owner, as the best home for entrepreneurs, that's one of the challenges to communicate this and prove this to the entrepreneurs. The second challenge, as we talked about the IDFA changes, how to master here the, the changes, and this will happen also in the future, how to adapt the market to the market changes and still, still target the right gamer audiences. The third one is, as, as we also discussed it, how to bring the family to life, how to focus on the right things. So not the synergies for the synergy sake, but the entrepreneurs should benefit from the family model. So this is something where we just started with the first projects. And I would say then, if we try to connect the dots here, the glue between esports and games, that's probably the fourth more strategic project, but also challenge how to prove now in mobile esports that we can leverage our esports infrastructure to make our mobile games more successful and the community more engaged. Do you think that any mobile game can become an esport? Yeah, I mean, it's happening already. I mean, I call it the democratization of esports. Actually, the fastest growing segment in esports, now also with PUBG Mobile and, and other also more mid-core, hardcore mobile games, we are seeing uh, um, great development here on the mobile esports side. 
So we're running tons of mobile esports tournaments, and we also mm -hmm. see how the engagement is increasing. Even in the, even on the casual side. Yeah, casual. You have this most recent development. I call it this casual competitive gaming, where I can challenge you in solitaire. Um, mm. This is just <laughs> this is like broadening the definition of esports. Uh, it's like the two of us playing a bit tennis um, casually. So the same happens in esports. So this is at the other spect part of the spectrum of esports where you can compete in, in casual games, short sessions. But I would also include this in the esports definition. Interesting. Okay, next time I find uh, uh, five minutes to play uh, something on my computer or my phone, I will think about uh, challenging someone to it. <laughs> Arne, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for joining today and thanks a lot for everything uh, that uh, you have uh, shared and good luck with everything that uh, you're doing with MTG. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And this is it for our today's episode. Big thanks to Arndt Benninghoff for coming on the show and big thanks to you for listening. If you like the show, follow us today wherever you listen to your podcasts and if that places a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Our audio engineer is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Your questions, suggestions, and opinions are always very welcome. Please do send them to podcast at tech.eu. This was TechEU Podcast. I'm Andrew Degler, and I will talk to you again very soon. For now, take care and enjoy the rest of your week. Bye-bye.